0: You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Hello, and welcome to The Slavic Connection. Today as our guest, we have Dr. Mary Neuberger. We're here to talk about Bulgarian yogurt. And Dr. Neuberger is the chair of the Slavic and Eurasian Studies Department and the director of the Center for Russian, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies here at the University of Texas at Austin. Her research focuses on Southeastern Europe, especially the country of Bulgaria, and includes topics like urban culture, consumption, commodity exchange, gender, and nationalism. And her most recent book is Balkan Smoke, Tobacco and the Making of Modern Bulgaria. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we want to talk today about Bulgarian yogurt. So what exactly is Bulgarian yogurt and how is it different from like other kinds of yogurt?
1: Well, I think there's... Not one specific thing that makes Bulgarian yogurt Bulgarian. Mm -hmm. So the idea that any yogurt would have a national label is a little bit of an arbitrary thing. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because yogurt, in the United States anyway, gets marketed that way as Greek yogurt, for example, Mm -hmm. or Bulgarian yogurt. But I think for Bulgarians, they do have a sense of Bulgarian yogurt being Bulgarian, of Mm -hmm. course, um, simply because it's in Bulgaria. It's made from Bulgarian milk. It's made from Bulgarian Bacteria, And this is a bacteria actually that you find in all kinds of yogurt. In fact, most yogurt has either acidophilus and or this Bacillus bulgaricus. And this is a specific Mm -hmm. um, bacteria that was first discovered in Bulgaria or with Bulgarian yogurt. And so therefore, uh, many people might call yogurt with this bacteria in it Bulgarian, but it's really kind of in a way a misnomer. I mean, yogurt is yogurt. Mm -hmm. In my mind, if I'm in Bulgaria, that's Bulgarian yogurt. (laughs) If I'm in the United States, yogurt is yogurt. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's very different here Mm -hmm. from what you would find in Bulgaria.
0: Yeah. Um, as we go, as we taste when, when we taste Greek yogurt, Bulgarian yogurt, um, it does tend to have a bit of a different taste than Western traditional types of yogurt that, um, are flavored with like s- different kinds of fruit. So um, how did yogurt become such a integral part of the Western diet? Does it have its origins in these like Balkan kinds of yogurt? Yeah. So in Southeastern Europe, um, it's more common, and I think
1: other parts of the world as well, for yogurt to be um, plain, what we would call plain here mm-hmm. in the United States, but it's not really plain. But differentiated by the animal rather than by the flavor. So it's Mm -hmm. not strawberry yogurt, blueberry yogurt. It's cow yogurt, sheep yogurt, goat yogurt. And in Bulgaria, they also have water buffalo yogurt. Mm -hmm. It's not super common, but you can find it in some parts of Bulgaria. In the past, it would have been more common. Mm -hmm. So, but yes, yogurt traditionally was not consumed globally. It was, you could find it in a part of the world which... I would refer to as the yogurt belt. I actually didn't make that up. This was from a mm-hmm. milk historian whose work I was reading. Um, and by the way, I'm a professor of history, so my interest in yogurt is historical mm-hmm. as much as it is contemporary. But um, yogurt came from that region, from starting from the kind of southeastern Europe and extending all the way to the Indian subcontinent. This was the traditional yogurt belt. And it really spread to the West initially in the early 20th century, It became kind of a health fad, mainly because of Ilya Mechnikov, a Mm -hmm. Russian scientist who worked at the Pasteur Institute and popularized yogurt, which he believed led to long life. Mm -hmm. And he popularized popularized it in the West through scientific journals, but also articles in newspapers like the New York Times. And that was when yogurt was first spread still as a plain, as plain yogurt, so -hmm. to speak, unsweetened. But then after World War II, yogurt became popularized in a different way as a sort of sweet dessert. And mm-hmm. that was through mainly through the Danon Company at that time. The Danon Company originated also in southeastern Europe. And Mechnikov's discovery of yogurt was via Bulgaria and via a Bulgarian scientist. So it also, in a sense, found its origins in southeastern Europe.
0: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And um so yogurt has been through quite a lot to come to the Western table. And today we usually buy it in stores. Um, and, but in Bulgaria and other parts of the Balkans, is it usually homemade or is it does, is it also usually available in stores?
1: So in Bulgaria, certainly yogurt is available in stores <laughs> and it has been for at least the post-war period. So mm-hmm. really since after World War II is when it would have been available in. Um, In stores in a kind of mass way, I Mm -hmm. guess you could say. But still, Bulgarians, many Bulgarians prefer to make their own yogurt Mm -hmm. in the village, especially. Or even if they live in cities, they want to get it from their connections in the village. So it's still very commonly homemade, way more so than in the United States, where Mm -hmm. some people do it. It's a very small niche thing here. I was just visiting a friend in L.A. who makes her (laughs) own Yogurt, but it's pretty uncommon here. So there, um, yeah, and actually I think there's a lot of nostalgia for the days when really everyone made their own yogurt or everyone had their grandma making Mm -hmm. their own yogurt. And now it tends to be more store-bought and it's not, doesn't have the same kind of flavor as this original kind of homemade yogurt.
0: Mm-hmm. Is anything lost else lost when you kind of industrialize the process and do this in factories other than just like flavor?
1: Yeah, I think flavor is always an expression of the chemical makeup and even mm-hmm. the nutrition or other kind of chemical factors in food. So when you industrialize yogurt, um, often it also comes out of industrialized milk production processes. Mm-hmm. So already... Milk in made in an industrialized setting loses a lot. It's no longer seasonal as milk is traditionally. I mean, traditionally, animals lactate only a certain time of the year, right? Mm-hmm. From kind of spring through late summer. Um, but in industrialized milk, you need milk all year, so you feed animals um, throughout the winter, grain fed, because grasses are usually under snow, you know, mm-hmm. and ice, to keep them lactating. And this isn't. This, of course, dilutes. Um, in many ways, the the kind of strength of the milk, the animal, um, it, it has an entirely different chemical properties. And in industrialized yogurt, it can also be boiled more mm-hmm. than it would be traditionally, where you usually just bring it up to a temperature and hold mm-hmm. it at a, as a temperature. But if you really pasteurize milk, you're killing a lot of the good bacteria and flavor in the milk. So it really tastes quite different. Mm-hmm. To have kind of industrialized milk kind of produced yogurt Mm -hmm. than, you know, kind of the local whole raw milk. Um, And also the animal tends to change in more kind of industrialized production of milk. It tends to be more the cow and not the sheep and the goats and those kind of animals. So it's a very different flavor.
0: Is that because cows just produce more milk? Cows produce more milk. And so it's
1: easier to produce on a mass scale Mm -hmm. with a cow versus, you know, a sheep or a goat where it's not going to be a, an enormous amount. I, I think it's also easier to keep cows lactating year round. Mm-hmm. And it's much harder to do that with the sheep and the goat. That's just my understanding. Mm-hmm. So therefore, the cow is just a much bigger dairy producer mm-hmm. um, than those smaller animals.
0: Yeah. Um, so you in what kinds of food usually was yogurt used like... Um was it consumed as like a breakfast meal or just in different kinds of dishes?
1: You know, it's hard to know kind of before the 20th century to have a clear picture of what were all the ways yogurt was consumed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My understanding was it was it was consumed plain most of all, like just in and of itself. But mm-hmm. in the 20th century, particularly in the post-war period, you can see um, a real uh, Ramping up of the use of yogurt in the Bulgarian diet Mm -hmm. in all kinds of ways. So it would be included in a breakfast meal with muesli or with honey on it. It would be included in lunch through a yogurt soup or a Mm -hmm. yogurt sauce, a garlicky sauce, for example, put on roasted vegetables or grilled vegetables. It could be part of dinner, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, also as a sauce. So And it could be part of dessert Mm -hmm. um, covered with honey or something sweet. So really, you do see this huge increase in the amount of yogurt consumed um, in the Bulgarian diet in the post-war period. Part of this was that fresh milk was very rarely consumed. Mm-hmm. So yogurt was the milk. I mean, they also consumed cheese. But really, those were the two primary ways you would consume milk, not mm-hmm. fresh milk, as in the United States is much more predominant for people to have like large amounts of fresh Mm-hmm. milk. So yogurt would replace that yeah. there, but used as sweet or savory across the cuisine and mm-hmm. all kinds of dishes.
0: Yeah. You mentioned earlier that usually, um, there's like a sort of nostalgia, I guess, for like the good old days of homemade yogurt. Um, and in what ways do people produce this now? Like the homemade version? The
1: homemade version? Well,
0: I mean, I have to say, I mean, I haven't really seen people
1: in so much in urban bulgaria do it although i know i know people do and i know Mm -hmm. some people who do but in rural areas they definitely do um and a lot of it is okay you mean the actual production process like how does one
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) make
1: yogurt more on the lines of
0: like who makes it where do they get it how is it kind of set up
1: Mm -hmm. well i mean i don't know that's kind of a big question and it's something i don't have a kind of comprehensive answer mm-hmm. for but i can say that um if, if you're traveling around rural bulgaria especially in the summer that you'll see yogurt being sold even little kind of roadside stands mm-hmm. where they'll have a refrigerator set up and plugged in and it says yogurt and it list the kinds and you can kind of stop and buy it mm-hmm. and if you're traveling in r- rural bulgaria and staying with people they always have it and bring it out and give it to you for you know like I said, almost every meal in mm-hmm. some form. Um, and I have seen people make it for sure. And it's like they take a bucket of whatever milk they have. Mm-hmm. And what I saw in rural areas, it often was sheep's milk, but it could be, you know, some people had cow, a cow, some, you know, depending mm-hmm. on what animals people had. Um, and you bring it up to a certain temperature and you add. They call maya, which is, you know, this kind of agent for making yogurt. Or you can just add several spoonfuls of yogurt, yeah, which then turns the rest of it, which is the more common way to make it, into yogurt mm-hmm. because the bacteria in there gets activated. And they kind of keep it at a temperature for a time, and it becomes yogurt pretty quickly. It sort of curdles, in a sense.
0: That's so interesting. Um, and I think, like, the whole topic of nostalgia for, like, the 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 kinds of yogurt and these like little roadside stands are interesting. I pers- I come from Serbia. My my family, um, still lives there. And I know when I travel back, there are little roadside stands selling all kinds of things. And it's not just yogurt, right? Is it in Bulgaria? Do they sell like fruits? A maybe? lot of,
1: um, well, yeah, fresh fruit. Mm-hmm. But then also a lot of um, like this. Like I brought today some slatko, which is yeah kind of fruit in a sweet syrup Mm -hmm. and sort of different kinds of canned fruits, but usually the sweet, you know, it becomes this thing that people have um, either just with like a little shot of rakia, for example, those have a little bit or they'll put it on yogurt or whatever. It's a sweet fruit kind of canned, you know, freshly preserved fruits. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's a lot of that. And I think there's a lot of in Bulgaria connection to this, rural food. They I mean mm-hmm. it's I think in the United States too, people, at least there's a kind of a trend towards people realizing that food tastes entirely different when it comes fresh from the farm mm-hmm. and local than when you go to the supermarket and buy it. And the taste, that better taste, is indicative of better nutritional qualities, mm-hmm. actually. So with yogurt it's all about the probiotic qualities. Mm-hmm. This term has really come into play really more in the two thousands. Mm-hmm. But it's not a new science or a new idea. This was what Meshnikov back in the early 20th century believed was what made yogurt live made people who eat yogurt all the time live longer. Mm-hmm. Was that it had this good bacteria in it that went into your gut and that this was an important place for food to be digested, etc. Um, in the communist period, it was really interesting. Narratives about the kind of wonder properties of yogurt continued. Mm-hmm. This idea of long lifers—that people living over a hundred in the Bulgarian villages ate yogurt all the
0: time—and
1: mm-hmm. they—it was almost like a mythology of yogurt can solve every possible health problem that you could have. You know that yogurt will keep you healthy and and alive. And some of it, I think has held up to kind of modern science of probiotics, Mm -hmm. and some of it has not. Yeah. Um, So it became kind of its own sort of belief system. Science and belief kind of, I think, are woven together there, but not just in Bulgarian mythologies around yogurt. I think it's, it's kind of a universal that food science is somewhat based on changing beliefs about what's good for us and what's not.
0: Yeah. Should we try some? Yes, let's, let's. So, we have some different kinds of yogurt laid out before us. Um, I think the first that we might try is this one called um, White Mountain Yogurt. So, this is produced, I think, here in Austin, Texas. And um, let's give it a spin. Yeah. And so this. This
1: so-called labeled Bulgarian yogurt, people always ask me about because mm-hmm. they're like, there's this Bulgarian yogurt. And I'm always like skeptical because, well, you can only really get Bulgarian yogurt in Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. And this to me doesn't taste like what I would find necessarily in Bulgaria. But yeah. nothing here does mm-hmm. because yogurt is such a product of terroir, they say, for mm. wine meaning it tastes like the climate. It tastes like what the animal ate. It tastes like the animal. You can't reproduce it. Mm -hmm. So, But this has a nice tanginess to it, this white mountain. I'm going to taste some right now. And um, that sort of sour tang is very common in Bulgarian yogurt too. Mm -hmm. But this is from cow milk and... Well, in the United States, there's a lot more stringent laws about how long you have to kind of boil or bacteria levels in, yeah. in milks. And I think it kills some of the flavor, mm-hmm. honestly. But nevertheless, it's good. But what I'm not getting is that kind of undertone of sort of a gaminess, for lack of a better term, Yeah, that one would find. I mean, you could say that about cheese, too, where you kind of, there's just a little bit of a you know, a sort of a deeper kind Mm -hmm. of complex flavor that is missing, but it's still good yogurt. Mm -hmm. And I, (laughs) so um, I would recommend it. But the one that I like better is this one I brought today. And actually it's from a farm in California. So it would be nice if we're local, but it's not. And it's a sheep's yogurt. And I think that's kind of why I like it. Mm -hmm. Did you try the sheep's yogurt?
0: Not yet. I'm going to give it a go now.
1: It doesn't have as much of a tang as the
0: other one. But you can definitely taste that it's sheep's milk. Yeah, there's something kind of more going on there. Yeah, it does have like a different kind of undercurrent to it. This one is mostly just... So the cow's one is mostly just about the tanginess. Yes, But this one has more of like the sort of milky flavor to it and a bit less of the tang.
1: Right. It has less tang, which I don't... In Bulgaria, there's certainly tang, but I feel like this White Mountain, it's almost like Mm -hmm. too much, a little bit. More that I'm kind of used to having of the tang. This has a much more subtle tang. I could use a tiny bit more tang in this one, but Mm -hmm. it's good. Maybe if you mix the two. Right. (laughs) But there's something nice about that tang and that gaminess and then a little bit of sweet added to it. Yeah. Which is why I brought today honey and also this sour cherry, what they call sladko. In Bulgaria. And it's basically just a sweet syrup is and, the, and cherries, sour cherries, is kind the, of preserved in this sweet syrup. So, but it's nice and thick.
0: Is the Slatko um, produced here in the United States or is this from a foreign country? This
1: I bought at Phoenicia. And mm-hmm. so I think it is it, it's either from like Turkey mm. or it might be Macedonia or somewhere. What is it? Does it say? Let's see. <laughs> product of Bulgaria. There we oh, go. It's product perfect. <laughs> product of Bulgaria. That's why it tastes like what I remember from Bulgaria. Um and actually Bulgaria's done a lot of exporting of this kind of You know, these kind of preserved Mm -hmm. fruits and also vegetables you can find at places like Phoenicia, like roasted red peppers, things like that. There's Bulgarian cheese has been more exportable. Mm -hmm. So you can find it actually because that preserves a little well better than yogurt. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So you can find like an equivalent of a feta Mm
0: -hmm.
1: from Bulgarian places like Phoenicia. But actual Bulgarian yogurt, I think it's hard to export that. It's just not stable enough you know, to kind of send overseas. But my friends in Bulgaria also claim, not everyone, but certain people, that Bulgarian yogurt, that the specific bacteria in it does not survive outside of Bulgaria.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is that the Bulgaricus? Yeah, and I don't think they're necessarily
1: saying that that specific bacteria doesn't, Mm -hmm. but that it becomes something else. Outside of Bulgaria. Interesting. And I mean, although that sounds kind of weird, I mean, I think that's true of any food is alive in a sense. Mm -hmm. And so wherever it's going to grow, it's going to take on the properties of the place it is, Um, the climate. I mean, these these different kinds of food, plant-based or animal-based foods um, in each different climate take on the properties of that place, of Mm -hmm. what the animals eating are. What soil the fruit or vegetables are growing out of. I mean, it, it, that's why when you travel, you're like, this is not the kind of tomato I'm used to having. You know, mm-hmm. that's why you can't reproduce. You come home and you're like, OK, I'm going to make this dish just like I had it in Bulgaria. And then you say, actually, it doesn't taste the same
0: mm-hmm.
1: because you can't reproduce the ingredients as well. Certain ones that are preserved like this, you can bring back the actual thing and it'll, you know. But then the fresh ingredients, you cannot reproduce in the same way. So in some, there is no Bulgarian yogurt outside of Bulgaria. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In my humble opinion. Yeah. Well. I have to have another bite now. (laughs) But um, in my work, it's more like I've been interested in the kind of layered history of that. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, one thing that didn't come at the beginning is I'm a professor here in the history department as well. That's my that's my third hat. <laughs> and so I've been looking at Bulgar- at Bulgarian yogurt, not just Bulgarian yogurt, but Bulgarian food over and changes that have un- that the different kind of food system in a sense and cuisine have undergone throughout the 20th century. And particularly in the post-war period when the more radical changes have come into place. So Bulgaria has one of the deeper mythologies, I think, of, in terms mm-hmm. of different elements of that Bulgarian food system. And so it became its own chapter in my book because of that.
0: Yeah. So how, how would you necessarily define your studies and, and why are they relevant to all of us?
1: Well, so I became interested in food history mm-hmm. after having written Balkan Smoke, a book on tobacco, um, with the book on tobacco, I started to realize how important consumption is not just to our daily lives, because every day we consume, you know, these different things, whatever they are, whether it's a cigarette or you know a bowl of yogurt, and so that in many ways that's more important to our daily lives than debates going on in parliament or mm-hmm. things like this. That sometimes everyday life, you know, is worthy of its own historical study. Of course, I'm not the only one that's done that. But for Southeastern Europe, there hasn't been as many studies along mm-hmm. those lines. So it was bringing things that were going on in other kind of fields of history into Southeastern Europe. So food, of course, is similar to that in that what we eat every day is in, in many ways the most important thing that we do. Whether we even have food you know, mm-hmm. is one question. And in many of the periods I look at, there's literally hunger and starvation Going on, so mm-hmm. food is both something that's very intimate and everyday, and there's all kinds of cultural meanings around everything that we eat, um, whether it's personal or national, or you know, in these different kind of frameworks. But it's also part of a bigger politics of food, yeah, um, which can be tied into national programs around pushing a certain kind of mm-hmm. nutritional profile that they believe is the best for public health. And that was definitely what happened in the communist period. And then looking at these kind of major transitions in Mm -hmm. history through the prism of food, I think was a way to just look at that, these different historical periods from a different perspective altogether.
0: Yeah. And these are really interesting questions that you're working with. Um, I, am wondering, um, As part of the sort of Slavic Connection podcast, we're also just asking a couple of questions about um, not just your work, but also kind of like how you got to where you are. Mm -hmm. So how did you decide to become an academic in the first place? Um, Well, it's weird because if I think back, it was never
1: a very conscious decision. It just seemed Mm -hmm. to happen. (laughs) Or maybe there was a moment. So, you Mm -hmm. know, in, in... in high school, I studied Russian. Mm-hmm. I became interested in Russian in high school. I was interested in the Cold War. It was mm-hmm. still the 1980s. And when I went to graduate school, or sorry, when I went to undergrad, I I left that behind initially. I said, mm-hmm. you know what? I just want to do something really creative. And I was actually a dance major for two years. Wow. But having said that, I did do <laughs> some folk dance during that time. Mm-hmm. And folk dance was one thing that was kind of bringing me back into Slavic, into the Slavic kind of fold. Um, But I started studying Russian again in undergrad, and I became more and more interested in that Russian language, Russian history, everything Russian, which also took me into the kind of broader area of Russian influence, Mm -hmm. including Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe. So I decided to go to graduate school because... I had this amazing professor whose name was Ron Wixman at the University of Oregon, who was a geographer and actually Bella Jordan, who teaches here at UT, knew him as well. Mm -hmm. And he was so amazing. It's like, I want to be that guy. I want to be him when I grow up because he was a folk dancer. Um, He traveled around to all these different countries and folk danced wherever he went, which I thought was cool. It's connected to my kind of dance Mm -hmm. interest. But he sp- and he spoke all these languages. He traveled around the world. And I said, that is such a cool thing. That's what I want to do. I want to travel. I want to go to these places. So I studied abroad in Russia for a semester, and it really was life-changing. It was Soviet Union then, mm-hmm. 1989. It was a very intense time. Wow. I arrived in January. I mean, so it was, you know, hardcore winter mm-hmm. in Russia. And I just loved it. It was just such a life-changing experience. And I said this is what I want to do. I want to travel. I want to be able to speak to people in their own language. How can I make this a career? So then I decided to go to graduate school and it it just, I loved being a student. And I said, I just want to be a student forever. Even if I never get a job in this, if I keep going to get a PhD, I'm going to be a student for a long Mm -hmm. time. (laughs) And so that love of being a student you kind of realize if you go on to teach, you're sort of a student forever because mm-hmm. you're always learning. You're always with students. They're learning. And that's exciting. So it is a little bit like you become a lifelong learner. And being in academia is the best way to yeah. to do that.
0: Is this um, the most rewarding thing in academia for you? Which thing?
1: Like <laughs> oh, being a lifelong learner. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you meant sitting here having yogurt. <laughs> no, no. Well, this is also
0: very rewarding.
1: <laughs> uh, yes, it is. It, I mean, every new kind of crop of students that come in and to see how excited they are and their ideas and their projects mm-hmm. and to kind of work with them on these projects. And I learn so much myself from them. Mm-hmm. But then I'm always pursuing my own, you know research and projects that I kind of bring back into our community here at University of Texas with people interested. Um, Yeah, that's that's it. It's I get to learn for a living. Um, (laughs) And teaching is really about learning. I think you're always learning um, as you teach. So it's a very exciting process.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, um, I think that this wraps up our conversation. Thank you so much for being here on the show with us. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed the yogurt. Yes, it was spectacular. (laughs) The
1: views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to The Slavic Connection. Please visit slavxradio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.